you realize that it's 95% luck. I mean, people can say what they want, it's luck. This guy dies right next to you, and you're right there. If the rifle is pointed a different direction, it's you instead of him. A bayonet wound to the throat in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Sent flying into unconsciousness after an RPG splits open a tank. A mortar round that strikes so close it requires facial plastic surgery. Lou Batondo survived all that, and you can understand why he believes luck played a role. But it certainly wasn't all luck. Combat skill, determination, and an abundance of grit brought Lou home from Vietnam with two bronze stars and three Purple Hearts. More than half a century later, Lou was aboard Honor Flight Chicago Mission 101. At the Vietnam Wall, he found the names of friends who didn't make it home. And in that moment, as the resolute survivor says, I cried like a baby. Lou Batondo came home from the war, married his high school sweetheart, and spent 37 years on the Chicago Fire Department, retiring as a battalion chief. We got together recently to go back in time. Some of the language in our conversation is both explicit and graphic. August 1969 comes around and you decide to enlist. Where did you think you were going and what was your motivation? Well, I knew I'd be going to Vietnam. I didn't think there was any chance of not going there. And my main motivation was I wanted to kill a bunch of gooks because they killed my best friend two years previous to this. And I thought I could get even with them. Tell me about that. Who's your best friend? Uh, Tony Namath was his best, my best friend. Uh, our last two years in high school, junior and senior year, we had every class together. I mean every class. And then uh, we were captains on the football team and that. And then we both went to college for a year afterwards, and we realized we weren't college material. So yeah, we're going to join the Army. Well, I, I had had a torn-up knee from football. Basically, between 67 and 69, 11 of us got into the service. I was the last. I was actually the last one to go. And the main reason is because the government didn't want to pay for an operation on the knee if I hurt it in basic training or something like that. So once the knee got better, I became more adaptable to be a soldier. So is it fair to say that your motivation was largely revenge on oh, yeah. behalf of your friend? Absolutely. You weren't driven by any political ideology no. or anything like that? No. Yeah, mostly revenge. And you took that it made passing. me very mad. You were very angry at that. Yeah. So you wanted to go. Yeah, in general, yeah. When you get into, uh, you go through your basic, when you get into AIT, you discover that you're going to be a heavy gunner. Right? Well, no, not really. They called it AIT. We called it advanced infantry training. I just assumed I'd carry an M16 or, you know, be, be a regular grunt. Uh, I didn't get the machine gun until I got over there. And then it's, you know, like I said, by my size, they said, yeah, you can handle that. Take it. Tell me about so, your arrival in country there. We landed in Cameron Bay. We had our summer khakis on. And when you get on the bus to go to the repo depot, there were screens on the bus. They weren't screens to keep out insects. They weren't that fine guy in the front, I don't know if he was a sergeant or what, he says, make sure your screen is has no holes in it. Look, and I said, should I just load up with holes? He goes, because they throw hand grenades through there. And I says, holy shit. I says, eh, I guess this is for real now. Now all of a sudden the stigma 
is over. You know this is for real. So went to the repo depot, and there probably was, I would say, 200 of us. And they start calling out your names. You're going here, you're going here, you're going here. When they got to my name, they said Quantree Province. They could have said any name they wanted. And I had you no, had no idea. They had no it. idea where I was going. So uh, they said, go look at the map. You'll find out where you're going. So I go look at the map. I can't find a damn place anywhere. Well, here it's as far north as you can go. You can't go any further north. Got on the bus, went to the airport. We get to Quantree. So then you stayed there for about three days, I think it was. You're not really in the war. You're in a rear area, you know, so you're not really thinking about it. You're getting three meals a day. And then uh, this general comes in, and he says, boys, he gives a big speech. He goes, boys, I'm going to wish you good shooting because you don't need good luck out here. He says, redominate these people. And I said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm up for this. Got choppered in to Charlie Company. They were out in the field at the time. Got to the CO, and he says, you're going to the 3rd Platoon. So I reported to the 3rd Platoon, and there was nobody from Chicago in, in the platoon. Uh, There's a guy from uh, Rochelle, Illinois, Smiley, a couple of guys from Ohio. You know, so, you know, you, you, you somehow you mix in quickly. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but it, it's one of those things where, hey, this is it. You're here. you, you got to do this. So then they told me I'd be the ammo bearer, which was fine with me. So just carried the ammo around, and the second day we got hit, and uh, Kiwi got shot. And okay, Kiwi is the sixth. He's the sixth gunner. He's the gunner. The yeah. You're you're the feeder. I'm the, I'm the am, yeah. And and he gets hit right away. Now, yeah. tell me what you felt when you first experienced enemy fire. Well, I hit the ground on my knees, and he was firing standing up. And then he hit the ground. So then I'm I'm stringing the rounds together now. So he gets up again and starts firing. And it's loud. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not soft. And then all of a sudden, it's dead silence. And I see this blood dripping on the ground. And I look up. Well, here he's shot in the chest. Called for the medic and everything. Doc Davis come over, put bandages on him, and then they, they called for a medevac. A couple other guys got hit in other platoons, too. The skirmish only lasted about 20 minutes or so, so they medevaced him out. I put my M16 on the medevac with him, and then I took the, the 60. So then when we NDP'd that night, uh, the platoon sergeant said, you're going to be the 60 guy. And he says, you got no ammo bearer, you're, you're it. You're it, you're a one-man band. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So I, I said, fine. And, you know, he actually took a little pride in it, you know. We walked for a couple of days, and we really didn't get any action. And then all of a sudden one night, Bada bing, and uh, the mortars hit us first, and then uh, they started. They started coming, and we held them off. Uh, been pretty good, and I don't, I don't remember anybody getting hurt that first night. When Kiwi was shot, did you have a moment to kind of realize that I'm really in it now? When I saw the blood dripping, I knew it was real. Is the best I can explain it. You know, he lived. I mean, he was alive when he left. So it's you. You haven't seen death yet, so you don't know. When did you see death? The first uh, actual death that I seen was on April 4th. Uh, we were on a company operation, 146 of us. We're in the mountains. They had 
tunnels and caves and everything. Now, I mean, I didn't notice then. Is this Viet Cong or North Vietnamese? No, these are North Army? Vietnamese. We, we, we fought mostly North Vietnamese, and a lot of Chinamen were okay. with the North Vietnamese. Pretty Boy was our point man, and we're coming around the bend, and he don't like what he's seeing. I don't know what he saw. He said, there's something wrong here. And all of a sudden, you hear a small arms fire. Now the mortars start coming in, so now we're, sl- we're sliding down into the valley, which is definitely where you don't want to be. Myself, this Jeff Young, and Shreve slid into an old bomb crater. So there's only one path to get to the hill where you want to be for cover. So we decided that one guy would roll out to the north, the south, and the east. We were getting small arms fire. You could see the rounds hitting the top of the bomb crater, so it was just jump out, you know. If you, you, go. you can go. Yeah, that was it. I made it to my guys where they're supposed to be, and then all of a sudden somebody said, hey, there's a soldier over there, get him. They were talking to me. I didn't know it. So I crawl over, and here I grab the body, and as I grabbed him, he turned over. He was missing his whole face. There was nothing there, and I puked. I mean, I literally puked on the man. That just tore my guts out. A couple more guys got wounded. So now we're going to have to set up a medevac on a platform. Well, unbeknownst to me, we're going to make an attack on the hill. So now we're lining up, and I don't know who's taking care of the bodies. So we do fire and movement up the hill, and it worked pretty good. So I'm working my way up the hill, firing, and all of a sudden we run into a 51 caliber, and he's in a bunker. And I mean, boom. So I'm kind of behind a tree, and that 51 caliber is just tearing up this tree, and I know it's going to get me eventually. But they have to stop firing to reload their 51 caliber. Now, this is fluke luck. They stop firing, and I have no choice. So I just fire into, the, into their viewfinder and charge them. And I was able to throw a hand grenade in as I'm going by them, and I didn't get, I didn't get hit, and we blew the gun up. So then we take the rest of the hill. A lot of casualties. I mean, we're, we're on the top of this hill, and you can see the, the medevacs coming in. And I had never seen a medevac. You know, I d- didn't know what the hell was going on. Well, I mean, after you see about three or four of them, you're thinking, holy Christ, what, what's happening here? Instead of staying on top of the hill, we all retreated back to another hill where they were going to set up a base camp. We went from 146 to 42 guys between the dead and the wounded. And now we got everybody running around trying to condense everybody. Our rucksacks are laying all over the place, so now you're crawling out, getting rucksacks just to get ammunition and, you know, whatever else you need. So then they have a roll call. Uh, We had myself, Pretty Boy, Garnet, and Luther were the only guys left in my squad. So they said, all right, you guys take this lane here and go from there. So I had the 60 gun, but I think I only had about 500 rounds of ammo. And I'm thinking, eh, it's going to be a little tough if they hit us. Well, my thought was, well, if they come after us, they got us. But they never come after us. So the next day, we're going to attack the hill again. But this time, they're going to bring in the, uh, the jets, and they have the delayed fuse bombs where it hits the ground and takes, let's say, a minute to blow up. I don't know how long it takes. Well, they did that. So we take the hill and very little resistance this time. Well, here we found out we kicked their ass. And apparently the, the hill for them was like a, a field hospital where they repaired who they could repair, send out who they couldn't. Well, we killed them all. 
I mean, they were, if I tell you a lot, it was a lot. I, I couldn't tell you how many. So that's why they never come after us. There just, just wasn't enough of them. So then we go back to our original position and B Company come up to support us because we didn't have, a, didn't have a lot of guys. So we stayed there another day. And then we went back and rode the tracks back in and licked our wounds, you know, and stuff like that. And that was the first time I ever experienced death. The first time I, I know that hey, this is for real. So how are you? How do you process that when you leave and you, you leave the field of battle? You go back and you sit and you've got time to think. You sweat a little bit, and then you clean your weapon because you want to make sure it's ready for the next time. I don't know if I ever really process it. I just, you know, I thought about it, don't get me wrong. But you're there and you did this, you reacted to this. See, everything's a reaction. And you don't, if you think about it, you're probably dead. So you have to do do a reaction. And if it works, it works. If it don't, it don't. It's as simple as that. Otherwise, you're not going to stay alive. Yeah. And now this is 55 years later or whatever it is. You realize that it's 95% luck. I mean, people can say what they want. It's luck. This guy dies right next to you, and you're right there. You know, if the rifle is pointed a different direction, it's you instead of him. And you had a lot of luck. Oh, you ain't kidding. Because this was April 4th. Yeah. Three days later is when you have your first incident that nearly cost you your life. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, it was in the morning, and uh, that night we had got resupplied with water. They used to give us these big, long rubber bags. They were like inner tubes, except long. They weren't round. And uh, that's how we got our water supply. So the choppers would drop them off. They'd just throw them out. We're finishing up with, you know, sea rations for breakfast, whatever. Most guys just drink coffee. I didn't drink coffee. I used to drink cocoa most of the time. I'm still not a big coffee drinker. But uh, you'd have, you know, something warm. You, you didn't really eat. You, I don't know why. You just didn't feel like eating. Well, all of a sudden, we got uh, incoming mortar fire, and they had the hill bracketed. So we're sliding down. The tubes of water are still there. Well, you can't leave the tubes of water there. So Pretty Boy and Up started crawling up to get the water, and we meet Cecil is up there. So now we take, the three of us take six of these water things. And we're sliding down, sliding down, and all, all of a sudden, <clears throat> boom. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. But I could move my fingers, and I could move my toes. So I said, oh, I'm going to be okay. Now, my face felt warm, but I didn't feel any blood or nothing like that. But Cecil got shrapnel in his shoulder. We started bandaging Cecil up, and then the medic came up, and he goes, get the hell out of here. I said, what do you mean? He says, you need to be bandaged. And I said, well, then I felt the blood, you know, and I said, yeah. And it, it, again, it didn't seem like much. I got medevac, first time I was ever on a medevac. I get medevaced out. I can't, can't give you all the details because I really don't know. I got off, I know I got off the medevac. This is shrapnel to your face. Yeah. I still got it. I got it in my neck. I got it in my cheeks and up here. I can't take an MRI to this day because it's metal and it's a magnet and you don't want it to move. Right. But uh, I'm in the hospital in Denang, and this got to be about two days, three days afterwards. And these three doctors come in, and the guy goes, I want you guys to see this job. Now, I'm black and blue all up in here. So they take off the bandages, and the guy goes, look at the job I did on that. And I'm thinking, 
How bad could this have been? <laughs> you you don't have a mirror in front no, of you, though. No, no. So then they do put the mirror in front of me, and it didn't look any different to me than I did before. But I got a little tip of the nose now where the uh, plastic surgery occurred. He goes, I did a splendid job on this. And I said, how splendid was it? He said, son, your nose looked like a banana peel when you came in here. I said, ooh. So I uh, stayed there for dinner that night, and then the next morning, I didn't even know how to get back to my unit. This is how basically new I was, and they never gave us instructions on it. So I just walked in the command post. I said, hey, I have to get back to Quantree. And the guy goes, where's your unit? I says, Quantree, what are you doing here? I said, I just got out of the hospital. Well, they're supposed to take you. I said, well, I'm here. Can we do something about this? He said, we got a convoy leaving at 4 o'clock. I said, at 4 o'clock, that's dark. He goes, yeah, but you're not going to get all the way to Quantree from the dang in one day. I said, oh, okay. So I think we went to Fubai or something like that, and then Quantree the next day. So I get, you know, go to headquarters for the 1st and 61st, and you walk in, and the guy goes, he says, hey, I'm Charlie Company 161. He goes, well, they're at C2. I says, well, can I get a ride to C2? Okay, he goes, yeah, probably. So they ended up, I take a Jeep up to C2, and then I'm back with my guys. So now I'm mad. I want to kill everybody. I don't care who it is. I want to kill everybody. The mortar that blows up and damages your face is a purple heart. Purple moment. heart, yeah. And also a bronze star? No, I got the bronze star for April 4th. Okay. Yeah. Two, se- two separate incidents. All right. But then let's move on to the next event where you're wounded. Okay. And this is the one where you're blown off the tank and no. you, you, you wind, you, you're you on the ground. Well, you tell me no. about it. Okay. The, <laughs> the second one is hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. And how does that how does that shake out? I had never fired a fifty caliber machine gun. That was the driver of the tracks job. So I just said, hey, can I shoot the fifty caliber if we get hit? And the driver said, yeah, go ahead. So now I'm ready. And, you know, so I lay my poncho right on the back of the, the, the door. The, the doors on the PCs came down like this. They're terrible to sleep on, but, you know, what do you, it's better than right on the ground. So This uh, is a personnel carrier? Yeah, okay. armor person. IPCs, APC, they call them, yeah. Right. So uh, Bobby Hampton had first watch, so he woke me up. I had second watch, so I woke the sergeant up. I had said, I said, uh, Jimmy, you want me to stay up with you? He goes, ah, no, nah, we, we got it. I said, okay. So I go back down, and I'm dead asleep, and all of a sudden, bada-bing, the track lifts up. I mean, boom, rolled me right off the back door. So now my job, I got to get up there to the 50 calibers. So I climb up on the thing. Well, here, the RPG, two RPGs and this one track. One went through the driver's compartment. They were hoping to cut that guy's legs off if he was in there. The other hit the 50 caliber and just obliterated it. I'm up there. Now, I had three Claymore mines hooked up to the handle of the 50 caliber, and I had done that, like, early in the evening, because just in case. So now I'm fumbling around looking for the detonators. I found two of them. <clears throat> I blew them. But now i got to get a weapon. So I jump off the side of the track, and here's this gook right there. And instead, so about 10 feet? Yeah, so instead of shooting me, he decides he's going to bayonet me to death. So he comes charging, and I was able to put my hand past the bayonet on the barrel of his AK and knock that out. And then I cupped him, and then I stepped on his throat. And I didn't know. I, I felt something, but I really didn't know what happened. But I wasn't in pain. 
I don't. I wasn't really bleeding that much. I, there was blood, but now, well, now I got a weapon. I got his weapon. Well, here, just at the same time, the driver of the truck comes with his or of the track with his MPC. Well, now we're firing out, and we basically held him back from, you know, overrunning the position. Only problem was the sergeant got killed as soon as that RPG hit the the metal. You know, the molten metal got him. And Bobby Hampton got killed on his way to his foxhole, his defensive position. I'll never forget this. You, you got illumination going off. You got mortars going off. You got explosions. And his tanker's up there with his 50 caliber. And it's like he's throwing the bullets out of it. I mean, you know, you, you picture Mighty Joe Young up there, and he's just blasting away. And then all of a sudden it stops. And I knew right away he was either wounded or dead. But, you know, the war goes on. So this guy, when he attacks you, you brush away uh, beyond the bayonet, I, 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 but but he got you yeah, he in did. the neck yeah. when he charged you. Yeah. And so he cut your neck, Yes. but not deep enough to, to cut to any. To do any damage. There's yeah. right here, I don't know if you'd be able to see it. This is under your chin. Yeah, no hair grows there. And that's where, he, so, where so you were sliced. Every morning when I shave, I see it. <laughs> it's a reminder yeah, of a is. not so pleasant moment. Yeah. But, uh, but then you... You you killed him. I did, I did. With his gun? Oh no, I stepped on his throat, knocked him to the ground, stepped on his throat, and I would have ground his throat in the ground if I could. We ended up we lost the tanker and our two guys, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience again. Well, you had another unpleasant experience. Uh, that was the second Purple Heart. That was heart. the second Purple Heart. And, and then a third Purple Heart. Yeah. Explain that one. We were coming back from uh, about a three-day mission. They were one personnel carrier short. I don't know what happened to it. Two of us said, ah, we'll just jump on the tank. You know, there's plenty of room up there. So you're on the tour to the tank. So we're riding along, and, man, all I'm thinking about is, boy, I'm going to get a hot meal today. And the next thing you know, boom. I know I was in the air. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up in the hospital. That was back in Da Nang. I don't, don't know nothing about the medevac, nothing else. Anybody tell you how far you flew through the air? Well, it, it went from anywhere from uh, 10 feet to 100 yards, depending on who you listen to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, whatever the distance, you're out cold. Yeah. And you have no recollection, and you no. probably suffered a pretty nasty concussion. Well, I probably, I know I had, I had headaches for uh, a while. I mean, more, you know, more than a short while after that. So, again, I leave the name, come back to base camp. So uh, we're out on patrol. A chopper comes out, uh, evening meal. The guy says, is there a batando out here? And they said, yeah, he's over there. Go get him over here. So I said, what's up? He says, get on the chopper. You're going back to base camp. And I said, all right. I had no idea why. Well, here Charles Percy was on a fact-finding mission, and they wanted guys to talk to him from Illinois. Senator, Senator former Senator Percy, from yeah, Illinois. My favorite senator, by the way. Okay. So I had a pair of boots that looked like shit. I mean, there were holes in them and everything. So the guy says, uh, what are you going to tell the senator? I'm going to say, I've been here about 11 months. I can't get a new pair of boots. I said, this sucks. So I never got to see the senator. But when I went back to the platoon, I had a new pair of boots. He got your message. Yeah, and I even shined them when I, before I left. <laughs> so then I, I spent probably, let's say, another month, give or take a day or two, in the field. And then uh, we're going to go out on a night ambush. And uh, Jeep pulls up. 
and said, you ain't going anywhere. And I go, what's up? He says, you got to report to the top sergeant. I said, all right. So I get in the Jeep, go to the top sergeant, and uh, he says, son, you got through three purple hearts. You're done. I says, what do you mean? He goes, you're done. I says, well, I don't think so. He goes, no, you're done. I'm telling you. Now, I don't know if there's a rule or a code or whatever. Well, he gave you an order. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was. So I, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't even argue. The man was big. <laughs> he says, uh, you're going to the rear to, not Quantry City physically, just to the rear base. So I get in there, and uh, Tap Sergeant there says, uh, what do you know how to do? I said, I know how to fire guns. That's it. I says, I have no other qualifications. He said, well, we'll find someplace for you. He says, go get something to eat. And so I go eat, and he says, all right, we're going to assign you to the PX. I said, oh, that sounds good. So I go to the PX, and the sergeant there and the lieutenant said, we have nothing for you to do. He says, go get a hooch, and we'll work something out. So then they decided, well, you can pull guard duty. I said, yeah, that's fine with me. So I would pull guard duty. You got warm meals, three warm meals a day. It was kind of nice. They had a shower, so you got a shower about at least every other day. So you're living in the lap of luxury, aren't you? Oh, I gained, I think I gained in, let's say, 30 days, I think I gained about 20 pounds. Christ, eating all the time. Help me with the time frame, the three events when you nearly die. Uh, April 4 begins a lot of that. And then when was the last event? I'm going to say... Uh, uh, in September sometime. I might have the dates a little wrong. So it's like roughly a half year, half year tour. Yeah. So you're you're back <clears throat> taking showers and eating a lot of food, and thus endeth your tour. Basically, yeah. In Vietnam, then you yeah. come home. Yeah. You nearly die three times, and you said that you were a lucky guy, yeah. and that's apparent. Yeah. I imagine you have some survivor guilt. You do. Absolutely. And how do you deal with that? When you come home and you have time to think about all this. It's the hardest thing. How do you how do you work that out? Uh, I don't think you do. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with the VA till I turned about 65. I just, you know, I didn't talk about the war much, if any. And you just bottle this stuff up. But I've been to church every April 4th since I got out of the Army. So I like candles for the boys. And that brings it all back. And there's anger there because it just... Shouldn't have been that way, but it was, you know. I'm sure to, uh, Nick the Greek's parents are still heartbroken if they're alive over losing her son. You know, it's just Jeff Young. He was 18 years old. He was a kid. How do you justify that or anything? Is that is your anger at the loss of life, or is it a more broadly based anger? Well, now it's more broadly based. Before, I was just mad at the gooks. But after, let's say, about 40 years of reading books about all of the stuff that went on, I'm really mad at my country. I think they let us down. We never got credit for being good soldiers. I mean, they didn't even want us to join the VFWs because basically that was the first war we ever lost. They sprayed us with Agent Orange, recognized nothing of that. Then all of a sudden, guys are, if you ever go to Lincoln Cemetery, take a look at the ages of the guys from Vietnam that are dead in there. They're, They're in their late 50s, early 60s. They never got to live a full life is the best way I could explain it. And now I blame it, first of all, on the government for not trying to win the war. They're using World War tactics in a jungle war. It doesn't work. If the war was left up to the soldiers, we would have won that war convincingly, convincingly. But it wasn't. 
And now I realize I'm 74 years old. Almost all wars are political. Only the Great War was the Great War. We could have beat them. The soldiers were tough. And that Ken Burns did that thing on the Vietnam War. And in the first episode, the reporters were saying, these guys fought like hell. He says they fought like everybody fought before them. So over a period of time, history has shown us that these things happen. Yeah. Bad decisions, absence of decisions. That's built up an anger that you have oh, absolutely. toward your country absolutely. and the decisions that were made back in, in yeah. the 60s yeah. and 70s. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, uh, and I'm still angry about that. That's like Agent Orange. Now, they sprayed us with all of this crap. It's there to kill the jungle, take the, the, the air out of the plants. It didn't work. The dumb jungles were so thick, sometimes you, in the daytime, sometimes you couldn't see the, the sun. That's how thick they were. So now you got these guys coming out, and first of all, you don't give them any VA benefits till 1980 when uh, Reagan got to be president. Let's say it ended in 73, you're talking seven years. Now you're telling me nobody knows that this stuff is gonna have an effect on the GIs and their health. Now all of a sudden, guys are dying, all of the same thing. We call it the trifecta, you get high blood pressure, bladder cancer, and uh, diabetes. And if in the general public, if one in 10 gets it, three out of five Vietnam veterans get it. And it's basic because Agent Orange. Now, it's too late for me. I mean, we're, we're done. But between 1970 and 2000, are they telling me they, they didn't know this was going on and there was going to be something they had to do to help these guys out? And they didn't do it. They just turned their backs on them. So not only did they not help us win the war, they turned our backs on us after they were done. They just didn't care. We want to talk about a lost generation. That's a lost generation. And that's on both sides, the people that were against the war and the people that fought the war. And then on top of that, when you come home, you're met with a lot of disrespect. <laughs> oh. and, and you came into O'Hare? I, I, I was, when we were leaving Fort Lewis, Washington, this young blonde girl come up and she spit a hacker at me. I, oh, I would, I, if I could have got her, I'd have choked her to death. So then when you get home, I had it better than most guys. I had a little waning period from combat to civilian life. But you can't come home from being in a foxhole on Monday and the following Monday drinking beer and eating a pizza in a pizza place. You can't adapt that fast. There's, it's humanly impossible. Well, some people never <coughs> adapted. Oh, it's very true. One of my friends, uh, he, the, the war bothered me, ended up hanging himself. We had 11 guys between let's say 66 and 69 that went into service, all from the same high school, all different branches and all of that. We have two of them die over there, two of them kill themselves over here. And one of my friends lives in Indiana. He's still fighting the war. You go on the 101st honor flight, Chicago. <laughs> You're called ahead of time by some friends, and they tell you a little bit about it. Yeah. You go to the wall, and I presume you looked up your friend's name. Every one of them. How many? Nine. You found them all? Yeah. Tell it, me how emotional that moment was for you. <laughs> well, we're at the Lincoln Memorial first. Then you start walking over to the Vietnam Memorial, and it's like it comes right out of the ground. And you, you have pause. You stop. So now as you get closer, this is reality now. This is 58,000 dead people. Now my uh, guardian, she was great. 
great. I give her the list. There was 11 names on it, not 10. And she figured out how we're going to find everybody. We started looking at names. And the difference between looking at the name and actually touching it, it brings life to that name. And you, you sit there and say, I knew this guy. So naturally, I had to tell the lady how each one of them got killed. And I don't know if she wanted to hear it or she didn't, but I had to tell somebody. It was somebody has to notice. So then my best friend is at the far end of the wall to the east. By now, my emotions are shot. Man, I mean, I'm bawling like a baby. I'm shaking. And this little volunteer lady comes up. And when I say an older woman, she's younger than me. And she says, I think you should have that name uh, stenciled. I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go for that. So she did. And I thanked her very much. She gave me a big hug, which was nice. So then I told my guardian, I says, we got to go to the middle. I got to say a prayer. So I said a prayer for all of them. And then we went over to uh, the statues. And I jokingly had said, I said, see that machine gunner over there? I said, 55 years ago, that was me. She goes, oh, we'll take a picture. I said, oh, okay. So I'm pointing at him and I'm looking. And I go, the bullets are wrong. And she goes, what? I said, the bullets are wrong. I said, the tips are pointing towards the guy's neck. It would never go, because when you go to dive on the ground, they would pinch you in the neck. The tips of the rounds always face the other way. Well, there's two guys standing there. You're right. You're absolutely right. And the one guy goes, yeah, they put it up in the 80s. I don't think they're going to change it now. The three of us started talking, and the one guy goes, how many people think noticed that? I says, I'll bet you every 60 gunner that goes through this place notices that. One of the things that got me is even on the plane going over, we're all a little hard of hearing, so everybody's talking loud. But all the old lingo comes back. Fire for effect. Dee Dee Mao. La Day. I says, holy Christ, it's like I never left this place. It was emotional. It was great. So you shed some tears. Oh, God. Like a baby. If they would have put a bucket under, I would have filled it up. There's no doubt in my mind about it. That's a good feeling, though. I'm at peace now. Some, somehow, I feel they're not forgotten and they're taken care of. And like I said, touching the name, you can put a face with that name. And, you know, it's the running joke. You're forever young? Well, they're forever young. They never they never get to be old. I think I'm in a better place for it. I don't think I'll ever forgive and forget. But they're okay, so I'm okay. And it, it, it balances out. Mm -hmm. God bless you, man. Thank you for your service, buddy. Well, then you have the joy of the homecoming. Unbelievable. When you come back into the airport and everybody's cheering and you see your fire department buddies yeah. there. Unbelievable. And they're, and they're yelling your name and in marked contrast to the return home when you <laughs> yeah. got spit on. Besides seeing my bride there, uh, that, that was the biggest moment. But there was a young kid, and when I say young kid, I'm just talking to a teenager. He's got a signed welcome home. So I just wanted to shake his hand because... This is generations away from him, and he's just hes just there to do something nice. So I shake his hand, and I, I said, thank you. And there's this woman, and she just reaches out like this for a hug. Christ, I could have crushed her. I hugged her so hard. But it was just nice. This is the only way I can put it. It was nice. And then I saw my bride, and I lost it again. So. Yeah. I'm telling you, besides getting married and get out of Vietnam, this is the best day of my life. Yeah. Honest to God. I'm glad you put marriage first. <laughs> Good point. And then another interesting thing comes about. 
I mean, you're in Vietnam and you're you're getting shot up, and your high school chums and friends back here don't know exactly what's happened. Mm-hmm. One of them, Mike Wasika, thinks you're a goner. Yeah. He thinks you're dead. Yeah. And he's thought that for over half a century. <laughs> and then he, and then he sees in a bulletin a profile of you, and he realizes Lou is still alive. Yeah. <laughs> That's Hall- pretty remarkable. Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah, that he called and I called him back right away, and he goes, "Yeah, we touch." I says, "Well, no, I'm alive and well." And he actually's the one that introduced me to my bride. Uh, they lived in the same neighborhood when they were kids, and me and him played football together, and that. And so, so it was nice to talk to him. And uh, we're going to get together eventually with about three other guys that we went to school with. So it's interesting that this little network that's <clears> begun <throat> because all of you have something in common: yeah, military service in a difficult time. You find each other, and you have a connection that's real important, and maybe it's salve on a wound that existed yeah, could, long yeah, ago. Could, could very well be. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you think about it, uh, most of the guys they, they they led pretty successful lives, you know. Well, you did. Yeah, well, well, thirty-seven but, years with the fire department. <laughs> but uh, you know, they, they did they did well for themselves, so they did okay. That's one thing that the other guys, they never got a chance to do well or not do well. They just never got that chance. At least we got that chance. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, uh, the country treated us wrong. In hindsight, we fought well. And that's what I take of it. Uh, I'm home now. I'm, I'm, I feel comfortable. Hopefully, uh, everything will go well for at least another 10 years. I'll be a happy man. I make it to 80, I'll be happy. I think you're going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your time. You're more than welcome. Thanks, Lou. You're welcome. Lou and Mike Osika, the high school chum who thought Lou didn't make it out of Nam 52 years ago, are getting together soon to renew their acquaintance and share their stories. They are both stories of survival. For Mike was a young sailor on the USS Enterprise in 1969 when explosions and fire aboard ship took over two dozen lives. Mike was in the thick of it. His remarkable story is our next podcast. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.